Let's get into the message this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll get right into Luke chapter 22, verse 54. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being a God who communicates to us through story and letters and through this book, the scriptures, and we ask, Spirit, come, open our minds and hearts to what you want to speak, enliven us to you in relationship with you through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you are new, we are teaching through the Gospel of Luke. Luke is one of four stories, four narratives, autobiographies about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. They are a collection, these Gospels are collections of eyewitness testimony arranged to make a very clear point about who Jesus is and what he's done. And we have been looking over the last weeks at the last day, day and a half, and night of Jesus' life before he was crucified. And we, let me just give you some context and a timeline of what's happened so far. The sequence has gone like this. Jesus has gone from celebrating the Passover meal, which is a meal in ancient Israel and Israel today that commemorates Israel's release from captivity in Egypt by the saving power of God. And at that Passover meal, Jesus takes the elements of the meal, the bread and the cup, and he makes that symbolism from the meal about his own death, about the ultimate act of God to save people. It's now not just about release from captivity for Israel, but release for all humanity from the captivity and the enslaving clutches of sin and death. And after the meal, Jesus walks with now 11, not 12 disciples because Judas has gone away, walks with them across the Kidron Valley out of the city into a little olive grove known as the Mount of Olives. And it is there where Jesus agonizes in prayer throughout the night, inviting the disciples to stay awake, be alert, be on guard against temptation, and pray with him, to which the disciples continually just hit snooze on their Jesus button. And so... Uh, then in that moment, Judas comes, the, one of the disciples who now comes to betray Jesus with a kiss, a seemingly innocent form of greeting full of venom. And that leads to the private arrest of Jesus in this quiet night in order to avoid the potential protest of a crowd. And in the course of the arrest, the disciples get out their swords and they strike a skirmish against the arresting troops. And they even lop off one of the ears of the high priest's servants, and to which Jesus responds with a ceasefire order, remember? And he even heals the man who has come to arrest him. What a great example of divine grace. At which point, the disciples, these guys who had committed three and a half years of their lives to partnering with Jesus, being with Jesus, doing the things Jesus did, now abandon him entirely. They leave him alone. Mark even includes that one of the disciples left his garment and fled the scene naked, which tells you there was no time for clothes. We're getting out of Dodge. All right, and that brings us to today's passage. So let's read Luke 22:54 and following with me. Then, seizing him, that is Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. Man, I am not. 
Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting or blasphemous things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then he said, Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Well, there's a lot going on in this story. Let's break this down. I want to just look at this part by part this morning. Uh, starting in verse 54, Luke records that after they had seized Jesus, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest, and Peter followed at a distance. Now, this setting in biblical studies is a bit of a controversial area because four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are uh, all somewhat different to do in degrees. They have slightly different timelines and slightly different angles from which they are recording the events. And in a lot of circles, the difference between the four uh, become an attempt to discredit the authority of the Gospels themselves. But I would suggest to you that if you take each narrative account and putting, put them together, what you have is in fact actually a composite picture of the night that actually makes a great deal of sense. It's a complementary rather than contrary collection of eyewitness accounts. And this is how it works. The arresting officers, not Romans, but Jewish soldiers who worked for the powers, uh, the powerful religious authorities in Jerusalem, uh, came and arrested Jesus. Now, according to custom, significant legal issues were settled either in local synagogues or in the case of bigger, more national issues in the temple courts themselves. And so there was a presiding legal body who was called the Sanhedrin. It was a group of 71 men who judged on legal issues uh, and matters of national leadership. Now, Jesus is nothing if not a matter of national intrigue and leadership. But instead of coming before the entire Sanhedrin at the temple at the proper time, they take him away to a quiet private house, the house of the high priest, presumably to avoid any crowd protest. And I, it's interesting as well that they rush the trial, they rush to get a verdict, which is something you do when you have uh, shady business going on, right? Speed often aids our wrong intentions. And so now the high priest is the top dog of the entire religious institution, the entire religious world of Judaism and first century Judaism. And once you're a high priest, you're kind of always a high priest, okay? It's like Mr. President. Like, you're still called Gerald Ford Mr. President or whatever, right? Because he was president at one point. And 
here, John, John's gospel, mentions that Jesus was brought before Annas, who was the father-in-law of the current reigning high priest, Caiaphas. Both are referred in the gospels as the high priest. And Jesus, then, is most likely taken to one home, which happens to be the home of the high priest, high priest house, okay? And at high priest house, you get Caiaphas and father-in-law, probably living in different places, but really, ultimately, most likely in the same place. And it is there that Jesus endures this grueling nighttime session of questioning. It's one part trial, two parts mob lynching. And Jesus is there on trial, and Luke condenses all of this into uh, uh, just this, this interview that culminates in a morning verdict. So here's Jesus. He's at the house of the high priest, and here's Peter following at a distance. It's a pretty striking phrase if you think about it, isn't it? There was Peter following Jesus at a distance. Peter, who so confidently told Jesus, right, the night be- that, that earlier that night, I will face arrest and even death with you, has already shown his inability to keep up his own ideal image of himself. He's distanced himself now, right? He's not going with him to arrest and death. He's following at a distance. It's a phrase that I think is very sad and also very typical of so many of us. How many of us at times follow Jesus at a good distance? Right? We follow at a distance. We keep up our guard. I don't want to be too committed. I want to see how things will turn out. I want to be careful not to be too associated with him, too associated and too committed with the things of God. It's this attempt that we have at times to maintain a sense of control in our lives. And it happens when we want to think of ourselves as good and faithful folks. We tell ourselves, I'm still following Jesus. And we kind of minimize that bit about following at a great distance, right? And that distance is this lag time between his word and our obedience. That lag time between his character and our trust. Are you following Jesus today at a distance? As we get into this passage, does this phrase resonate with you? Or maybe a better question is, where in your life are you following at a distance in this relationship between you and God? Some of you, the distance is simply that you have just begun to move toward him. You're checking him out. You're, you're interested in what, what is Jesus about, and you've yet to commit yourself to him as your Lord uh, and to his kingdom ways. Others of you are more like Peter. At one time, you were really close, right? You felt close to him and and now you find yourself distant from him. Of course, for a number of rational reasons, right? I mean, it's just so busy these days. Well, things have gotten tough, and uh, man, there's that pressure at work, and the kids' schedules, and the nagging doubts, and man, the associating with Jesus is just so divisive anymore, and well, you get the picture. Others of you are not following at a distance at all, but keep this story in your back pocket, because there will be times when you find yourself distant. And if you find yourself distant today from Jesus, let's learn from Peter. Let's learn from his story because it's distance that becomes the setup to a great fall. And at the same time, distance is this great opportunity for us to see where there is a gap and to begin to work on closing that gap or allow God to work on closing that gap in our lives. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Now, with Jesus arrested on trial, Peter following at a distance, Luke tells us what happens next. 
says that there were some people who, fire, who kindled a fire in the middle of a courtyard. And keep in mind, this is a great house with colonnades probably for walls. And in the middle of the house is a big outdoor courtyard. And there are some people there who have kindled this fire. And so Peter sits down with them. John tells us that it's actually John himself that gets Peter in because he knows someone in the family who belongs to the high priest's household. And so Peter sits down with them and the menacing intimidating young servant girl presses Peter and says, hey, you were with him, weren't you? You were with him. Peter says, woman, I don't know him. Now, pay attention to this. It's a total denial of relationship. It isn't a sidestepping on some doctrinal issue. It's not this sidestep to say, well, I'm not like that kind of Christian. No, it's like, I don't know him. And then, sure enough, someone else says, you are with one of them, or you're one of them, right? He now associates Peter with the community around Jesus, right, to be one of his disciples. He says, man, I'm not, again, outright denial. Yet again, an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him because he's a Galilean. In one account, they recognize Peter's accent as Galilean. And Peter responds again, man, I don't know what you're talking about, okay? I don't, I don't, like, you're crazy. Just outright denial. Peter has this moment where the rooster crows, and all of a sudden, Jesus, from somewhere in the house, maybe being transported from Annas' portion to Caiaphas's, maybe he's somewhere where he can see through that colonnade right into that courtyard, and his gaze meets Peter's. Peter remembers what Jesus has said. And he goes out and he weeps bitterly. There's a lot happening here. There's a lot going on. And what I want to focus on today is two things. Why, why do we fall? Why do we fail spiritually? And how is it that we can stand? So why, why do we fall? See, we fail to be faithful to Jesus sometimes in big ways, other times in littles. But Peter falls in this passage in a big way. When asked about his association with Jesus, Peter utterly denies he knows him. He's like, no way. Peter, by the way, is a very fascinating character. If you look at Peter's story, he is the first to boldly declare, Jesus, you're God's Messiah. You're the one God sent to save the world. No small confession in first century Judaism. He is the first to speak up on that mountain where Jesus is transfigured and the voice from heaven comes and says, this is my son, listen to his voice. Peter's like, I got a plan, right? Let's build some houses. Let's make an institution out of this experience. Let's put some tents up, right? Jesus is like, shh, stop, Peter, right? He is the first to be bold, to be brash, to be confident in his ability to get with Jesus, to do stuff for Jesus, and for Jesus to be proud of his great effort. And yet, the intense, menacing pressure of a young teenage girl who has zero social standing in the society as a slave utterly cracks Petros, the rock. Isn't that interesting? The one who is the rock, Peter, is utterly cracked by the pressure of a young girl. So ironic, isn't it? The juxtaposition is there to show us something about Peter. 
And I want to talk about why we fall. Why we struggle to be faithful to Jesus in big ways and little ways. Three things I want to show you about why we fall. First is this. We, we, We fall when we stand on our own. We fall so frequently when we stand on our own. Earlier, before the arrest scene, Jesus tells Peter something. He says, you know what? Satan's going to go after you. He wants to sift you, right? Like wheat. I have prayed for you, Peter. Okay? And after you turn back, implying he will turn away, he says, strengthen your brothers. Encourage the community. Right? Peter has no time for this. He blows right past what Jesus has just implied and says, Lord, I will not fail you, right? He says, I will go with you to arrest and even death. How profound is that? No time to hear of his weakness. He goes straight to what he is capable of doing in his own sight. The focus of Peter is on what he can do for Jesus, not on what Jesus needs to do in him. Peter is attempting to stand on his own ability to perform faithfully for Jesus. He is totally confident in his capacity to outshine others in matters of faith. In one account, he even says, even if all others fall away, I will stand with you. Whoa. After all, he did step out of the boat in the storm while everybody else stayed inside, so he must be fantastic. Do you have any places today where you have your confidence before God really on your own ability to perform for Him. To be, to be just really honest, this week uh, I, I was lamenting in my own way how I just felt like, God, I'm following you and I don't really feel very connected to you. I don't feel greatly connected at all. And in fact, if I was really honest the reality was I hadn't been making a lot of space for spiritual disciplines in my life over the last couple of weeks. Prayer had kind of been like this in and out, just not really focused. I wasn't getting up in the morning, spending time with them as I typically try to do. And I felt really disconnected. And here was the, the, the internal dialogue. If I want to feel connected to you, I've got to prove with a lot of sincere effort, a good solid week of great spiritual discipline performance so that I can feel connected to you. And where was my confidence? In me and my ability to perform spiritually for God. And it was awesome. On Wednesday, I was just like thinking about this with Jesus, reading, and it, I, it was like clear as anything else. The Lord just said, hey, move on. I love you. I have connected to you. Rest in that. Be with me in that. And so my distance was really a result of seeking to prove myself. My, my, my distance was an issue of self-confidence that was leading to God doubt. I was doubting his love. I was doubting his connection to me because I was looking at what I was standing on, which was my work. And when we try to stand on our performance, we will never really stand. You see, we have capacity to follow closely only because God comes into our lives to help us. It's only his enablement that makes us able to stand. So we have to learn how to reject the I will boasts of Peter and learn the your will surrender of Jesus. Okay, Both statements uttered in the garden. I will from Peter, your will from Jesus. We have to learn that. And so we fall when we stand on our own apart from the grace that enables us to stand. We also fall, by the way, when we're motivated with the wrong motivations. We fall when we have the wrong motives. 
because get this, guys, our behavior is never a result of just willpower. We don't just will things. We don't just rationally think this is what I want to do and I will do it and I will try really hard at doing it. That's not how human behavior works. According to scripture, human behavior is motivated from deeper places, from desire, from deeper affection and love. So in other words, we don't just will things, we want things deeper at a deeper level. And so when our motivations, when our motivations are disordered, we will inevitably fall in big ways and little ways. And this is how it works in Peter's life. Peter shows himself to be very prideful. Lord, if everyone else falls away, I will stand with you. That is a boast of incredible pride, right? Like he's not cluing into the fact that he is on the same playing field as the other guys, right? And so he sees himself the way he wants to see himself, not as he is. At the same time, on one hand, he's motivated by pride. The pendulum swings in that moment before the fire, and now he becomes motivated by fear, and he denies association with Jesus and association with his followers, and he basically says, I have no idea what you people are talking about because he's terribly afraid. He's terribly afraid that his association with Jesus will bring him shame and suffering, which, by the way, was something Jesus said was going to happen, right? And so he's backed off. He says, on, he's, he's motivated by pride or he's motivated by fear, at times both. And the reality is the same for us. When we're motivated by fear or pride, we'll have a very difficult time faithfully following near to Jesus. We'll fall when we're motivated by pride or fear because both pride and fear run opposite directions to the fabric of faith. Here's, here's why. You see, pride says, I'll do the right thing because I'm better than others. I'll do the right thing so that the other people will think I'm great. Fear says, I'll do the right thing so that I, nothing bad happens to me, right? Pride says, I'll do, I'll do a great job so that you think I'm a great person. Fear says, I'll do a great job so nothing bad happens to me. Both, though, are fundamentally self-absorbed motivations. Both are motivations that are rooted and oriented around the self and therefore disable us from being able to focus on someone else. And so following Jesus, friends, is fundamentally about being oriented to someone other than us, someone greater than us. And we fall when we're driven by messed up motives. We fall when we are driven by coercive, disordered desires. So, for example, in my life, I, I never fail to be gentle and kind and patient to my kids as a dad when I've spent too much time with Jesus, right? W what happens is I fail as a dad. I fall spiritually as a dad. I fail to be gentle and patient and kind when I'm focused on me, when I'm fearful that my concerns and my thing won't happen, or when I'm prideful and I think my time is more important than their need in that moment, and that's when I fall, we fall because we stand on our own, and we fall because we have the wrong motivations. But thirdly, I think we fall, this passage shows us, we fall so that we can learn our great need. I believe this passage teaches us that we fall so we can learn our great need. See, this is one of the hardest things, I think, for us to grasp. That failure, get this, get this, failure is not a disappointment to God. It is an assumption for him. Our failures do not disappoint God. They are his presupposition. And he knows ahead of time that it's going to happen. 
we're the ones who are constantly surprised. Right? Have you ever noticed that? Like, we're always surprised, like, when we fall in big ways and little ways. Like, oh, man, I, I can't believe I was insensitive to my spouse. That's shocking. And they're like, no, it isn't. Right? I, I could have told you that was going to happen. Like, I, ah. And so we hide it from others, and we deny it to ourselves, and we re-narrate our failures, don't we? And we say, well, that was a misjudgment. I lacked information. Peter goes from this total inability to grasp his potential failure, confidently asserting, Lord, I will go to death for you, to all of a sudden denying the Lord three times. And it's shocking to him, right? I love how Luke has Jesus turning and looking directly at Peter. You wonder what kind of look was in the eyes of Jesus in that moment. I think you know a lot about your assumptions about God when you imagine that look. You imagine that glare that tells you something of your theology of God. You imagine something else, maybe more gentle, maybe just more discerning and knowing and inviting, tells you something about your theology of God. What do you see as you imagine that scene? Peter turns and he sees Jesus' gaze. His gaze has met him. I love something that happens after the resurrection, particularly in Mark. Mark tells us that Jesus says, and actually it's the angels, the angels who say to the disciples, they say, tell the other disciples and Peter to meet Jesus in Galilee. Jesus is so thoroughly restoring to Peter all the way through this. It's, 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 found, it's, it's absolutely amazing to me. So at that moment, Peter, realizing he's just utterly denied Jesus, utterly in great need, Jesus' eyes meet him, he goes out and he weeps bitterly. What a realization. Man, I have failed to live up to my own expectations. I have failed to live up to the ideals that I had of devotion. Has that ever happened to you where you realize I have not lived up to my own hype? I have not lived up to my own expectations. And if we're fortunate, friends, we too will have the Lord's gaze meet us in our times of failure. We'll, we're better to go than the eyes of Jesus for grace. You see, Jesus has said, blessed are those who mourn, those who recognize their sin, who recognize their distance from Jesus and weep over it. Not because the greater our show of sorrow is, the more forgiving God will be. That's not how it works, right? But because our sorrow helps us, right? It makes a difference with ourselves. It makes a difference in how ready we are to see our need and live humbly before God and others. See, true humility doesn't walk around saying, oh, I'm a failure. That's shame, and the gospel cleanses us from shame. It removes shame from us. But humility says, no, I can see and presume my capacity for failure. I understand and grasp my proclivity, my, my bent toward denying God. Humility says, left without help, I will likely fall. Faith says, I trust in God's available help to come and rescue and help me out. We need humble faith because falling can be a tremendous opportunity to grow in both. When we fail spiritually, we can grow in humility because we have seen our weakness. 
when we fail spiritually, we can grow in faith because now we have an opportunity to trust our total forgiveness. Now, as I talk about learning from failure, don't hear license to sin, please, okay? Because Paul says in Romans 6, 1, right, shall we go on sinning so grace can abound? He says, by no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it habitually any longer, right? He says in Romans 8, put to death the misdeeds of the body, right? We're to live as God's righteousness in the world. Again, Paul says in Titus 2, for the grace of God, the grace of God has appeared to offer salvation to all people. Salvation comes from grace, not my performance, but it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So, we learn from Peter that we fall because we stand on our own. We learn from Peter that we fall because we have wrong motives. And we learn that we fall so that we can see our great need. Here's a question as we focus this point. Do you, this morning, see your need? Or are you, are you surprised when you fail to live up to your ideals? Are you devastated when you fall? See, let me just suggest to you this morning that surprise and devastation at our spiritual failures are probably signs that we have not yet learned our great need. We are still standing on our own, right? See, our constant dependence on God's grace is not only a source of forgiveness, but also empowerment. We grow through this. Surprise and devastation at failure reveal more confidence in self than we would like to admit. But Jesus wasn't surprised at all. He wasn't surprised remotely by Peter's denials. He predicted it, and he tried to help him through it before he even did it, right? He said it would happen, and after he turned back, that he would have mission to go and strengthen his brothers. And Jesus, by the way, is not surprised by your sin. Jesus is not surprised by my sin. He knows our failure before we do, and it did not prevent him from going to the cross. It did not prevent him from what happens next in the story. It doesn't prevent him from offering you true, deep fellowship, the gift of the Spirit, and, and forgiveness of sins. He offers you now an opportunity to grow through failure and learn from it. What I love about Peter's story is that he turns out to be a good leader. But he cannot be a good leader until he's a good failure. He can't be a great leader of God's mission to Israel and the Gentiles until he is a great failure. This seems totally paradoxical, but how on earth can Peter lead a movement that proclaims the forgiveness of sins until he recognizes the depth of his need for forgiveness? How can Peter boldly proclaim the grace of God to the nations until he recognizes his great need of it? Do you see that? See, falling is only the end of our story when we fail to receive grace in our failures. There's this great line in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 7 where he says that, you know, I recognize my words in my former letter caused you sorrow. And go read through the Corinthian letters. If that was written to you, you'd be sorrowful too, right? And so he says, I recognize that it caused you sorrow and I rejoice, I'm glad, because, he says, it led to a godly sorrow that led to repentance instead of a worldly sorrow that led to death. A godly sorrow will lead to repentance. You see, that's the contrast between Judas and Peter. In a matter of a chapter, you have Judas utterly betray Jesus. And what does he do with it? 
He hardens his heart to the grace that is certainly available to him, and he kills himself. Peter just betrays Jesus with his denials, and yet his heart is soft and receptive to the grace that will heal him. It's amazing. See, Peter betrayed Jesus with his, deni- his denials, but he allowed sorrow to make room for grace. The question is, who are you today? Are you a cynical Judas? And failure is definitive for you, and that's the end. Or are you a repentant Peter whose failure has become a door to grace in your life, an opportunity to grow into maturity? I wish it didn't work this way, but it keeps on working this way in my life. I keep recognizing stuff that's messed up in me. And then I repeat it. And then I have to say sorry. And I get to learn from it. And it works that way in your life. Now finally, though, that's how we fall. That's why we fall. Because we stand on our own. Because we have wrong motives. And because it's a chance for us to learn our great need. But how is it that we stand? How do we stand? See, this story isn't all about failure. It's also about the faithfulness of God. How is it that we can stand? Two things. We can stand when we understand who Jesus is. And we can stand when we, understand, when we see what he has done. Let me move on and share the rest of the story with you. Luke records the experience of Jesus on trial here, and before the verdict is even announced, he is punished and he is beaten. It tells us something about God's understanding of the oppressed, the wrongfully wounded and hurt. Jesus stands with us in that. He's beaten and he's mocked by soldiers who ironically prove his authority. Right? They, they beat him and they, they blindfold him and they hit him and they say, prophesy who hit you. But in reality, in Luke, earlier, only a few chapters earlier, Jesus had said to his disciples, I must be betrayed and then beaten and then condemned. They are, in fact, fulfilling his very own authoritative prophetic word. And then at daybreak, early in the morning, the elders of the people and the chief priests this portion of the Sanhedrin, gather in Caiaphas's home and they press in on Jesus and they say, if you are the Messiah, tell us. If you're the Messiah, tell us. Well, what does he say? I mean, this is not a clear answer to us at first glance. He says, I tell you. If, oh, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if, I, and if I asked you, you wouldn't answer. And then he says this, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Now, this is an interesting response, right? They want to know, do you think you're the Messiah? And, and if you're new to the Bible story, the Messiah is a very important figure in the Old Testament. It was promised from God to David, this king of Israel, that he would have a son, an offspring, who would rule forever. And he would establish Israel and bring blessing to the nations, and he would be this anointed or Messiah. And they ask him if he's the Messiah, because if he answers yes, they have a tool now. They can go to Rome and say, we have this political charge against somebody who claims to be king, which is contrary to the claim of Caesar to be the king, and he is inciting a rebellion. And so they're asking so that they can get ammo. And instead of saying yes or no, he calls their bluff, right? It's like, you won't believe me, and if I ask you anything, you're not going to answer me. And so he, he drops this. He says, something about being the Son of Man, that, that the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God. What in the world is Jesus talking about? This is, let me tell you, this is really interesting, just in case you think that it's not. This is, this is profound. So ha- ha- hang in, okay? What Jesus is doing is he's, he's 
quoting from two very significant Old Testament passages. He, the, the reference to the Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision of a figure called the Son of Man who comes on the clouds from heaven, comes into the presence of what is called the Ancient of Days, another name for Yahweh, the Creator God, and he's given authority and power over the nations, and he's given an everlasting rule. And then in Psalm 110, there's the other passage where Jesus quoted from a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 20, where Yahweh invites David's offspring to sit at his right hand, which is another way of saying, join me in ruling, share the throne, and rule with God. Okay, So the idea of the Son of Man who has authority over the nations and who sits at the right hand of the Son, of, uh, at, the, at the hand of God is he's saying, look, you want to know who I am? I'm the Son of Man who's at the right hand of the mighty God. In other words, I am the true judge. Jesus is saying, look, I'm on trial, but I'm really the judge. He's saying, look, I'm the real judge. I'm the judge of the earth. And from now on, he's referring to his upcoming resurrection and ascension, right? He says, well, you want to know who I am? Wait and watch, watch and see what happens next. Right, And in order to stand then, you have to see who Jesus is. He's the world's true judge. right? He's the actual judge, and he's on trial. That means every failure, every fall, every sin, every misstep of our lives are ultimately accountable to one person, the true judge of the earth. But if you want to stand, you have to not only see who he is, you have to see what he did. Look at what happens next. They press in and they say, are you the son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. An affirmative, right? And yet he's put in the confession in their mouths. And he sa they all say, well, do we need any more testimony? Right? We've heard from his own lips. In other words, Jesus is the true judge of the whole earth and he's standing on trial. And it's not even a fair trial. It's a kangaroo court. He's tucked away in a private home. He's not given any opportunity to be fairly represented. There are no dream team of lawyers there, right? There is no great representation for him, and he doesn't uh, have anyone on his side. He stands there condemned. In fact, Jesus stands before his con con uh, accusers totally condemned. Uh, and from all four accounts, we get this story about how uh, the people, the, the leaders tried to bring false accusations against him, but they wouldn't even line up, and they had no evidence that was convincing against him. So whose testimony got Jesus killed? His own. It's his own words that bring condemnation. The judge of the earth has put himself on the stand and condemned himself by merely telling the truth. What does it say to you that the judge of the earth is refusing to judge the earth? and instead is being judged for the earth? He's taking the blame for every blasphemous life ever led, even though he's the only one truly offended. He's the perfect mediator between God and humanity. Do you see how utterly upside down this is? This total reversal of power and authority demonstrated in divine love. See, when we stand on our own, as so many of us are tempted to do, we put ourselves on the throne of our lives and we put ourselves in God's place. But here in the early hours of the morning before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, Jesus, God himself, is in the dock, putting himself in our place as the one who is judged. Let me tell you why this is so significant this morning. See, if there's no judge at all, there's no hope for the world. We know the world's messed up. We know that there needs to be justice 
If there's no judge, there's no hope for the world ever being put right. And yet if we do have a judge, there's no hope for us. We won't pass the test. But Jesus Christ says, I'm the only judge you can handle. Right? You have a judge, right? but you can't handle just any judge. You have to have me. I'm the judge who was judged. Therefore, there's hope for you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? This is the good news. It's the news that offers hope to the world. There's a judge, but there's hope for you because he was judged in your place. Christianity, friends, is the only worldview where God becomes vulnerable and is judged for us. Let me give you a couple ways this changes everything. This changes everything. First of all, it enables us to live in a way that faces our failures. Right? The judge has already been judged for them. We don't have to be defensive because we have the only defense needed. We have been acquitted because the God of the universe who says, look, you can go free on account of me. You have his perfection as your defense. You can look at your own failures without defensiveness because he stood in your place to be judged for them. That changes us. It changes how we relate the masks in community can begin to come off and we can stop playing power games trying to impress one another because a community that is trying to impress one another is revealing the degree to which they fail to get the gospel. The other thing this does is it it enables us to stand on something already done. We obey God now out of gratitude. It's his love that drives our behavior rather than fear or pride. You see, pride utterly melts away when you realize someone had to stand in my place and be condemned. But fear melts away when you understand he did stand in my place totally out of love. See, we can live with entirely different motivations because of the gospel. See, when you stand on what's already been done, it changes your worth. It changes how you see yourself. You don't have to be like Peter, boasting or proving. You can see how much you're worth to God who endured judgment, your judgment, because he wants relationship with you. You can rest in that. You can rest your worth on that. So let me ask you today, how will you respond? How will you respond to the one who stood in your place? today. See, when you know that this is how God has come near to you, what he has done to connect to you, how can we follow at a distance when he has come to close the gap? Respond today by simply receiving his grace. Take hold of it and tell God today where you are. I want you. I want to be with you. I want to know you and follow you. I want to receive what you've done to establish me, to acquit me, so you can be Lord of my life and be my defense. He's worth it. You can stake your life on him. What I want to do here is I want to invite the band up to lead us in one more song as we receive communion this morning. I want to offer you time to just pray here as the ushers come forward. They're going to bring the bread and the cup, those elements that Jesus took at Passover and said are about him. They're about, they're symbols of what he has done to rescue us. If you trust Jesus today, if he's your Lord, then this is a meal for you. It's a moment to draw near. Maybe today it's the first time where you've said, I want to draw near to Jesus. You can take the bread and the cup as a declaration of saying, I believe this good news. I believe he's been judged for me and that I can stand now in his place because he stood in my place. It's an opportunity for us to just greatly receive what he's done to get near us.
What does this change for you? It changes everything. Let's celebrate that reality by receiving communion this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have done to connect with us, all that you have done to establish us with righteousness by absorbing our unrighteousness into yourself and offering us your spirit, offering us to be united into relationship with you, to change everything in our lives because of the good news. We thank you. We want to celebrate this reality with gratitude now as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.